Today's episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by Inside Tracker. Here at Doctors of Running, we're always interested in more information about our bodies to help do what it takes to be as strong and healthy as possible. Inside Tracker helps us take one step closer to that goal with a personalized approach to health and longevity by providing highly specific, performance-focused blood work analysis. One of the things we love most is that they give you clear, simple recommendations on things you can control to optimize your health. Things like changes in diet, supplements, workouts, and other lifestyle choices. So if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, then visit Inside Tracker today. For a limited time, you can get 20% off your entire Inside Tracker order when you sign up using insidetracker.com slash doctors of running. That's insidetracker.com slash doctors of running. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors Running Podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. I'm Nathan Brown. I'll be hosting tonight's episode. I also have with me Dr. David Salas and Dr. Matthew Klein. Um, we got the gang back together for a fun Q&A episode. So we gathered your questions through Twitter and Instagram, and we're putting them into this episode to try to give as best of responses to these things as we can. As you can guess, a lot of these questions are going to be ones that we can't answer directly, but we do like to take apart questions and figure out what are the assumptions behind these questions and what are other considerations that you as the person asking this question can process through to help you get to your own answer because just spoiler alert, a lot of it is the whole it depends answer and there's so many individual characteristics, but that doesn't mean that Q&A episodes aren't helpful. Um, They just don't give you direct specific answers all the time. Also, so sorry to Matt. He has spent the last hour, uh, 40 minutes trying to get his internet working, and it's still not working. So he's a little grumpy goose right now. We got grumpy yep. goose Matt on the podcast. Yep. But I'm hot spotting right loose. now. I'm running up, a, <laughs> running up a bill on my on my phone bill. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, but that's all right. I'm sorry, Matt. It's frustrating. Thanks. So we don't have a specific. subjective for the week. However, uh, we are always gathering questions for our Q&A episodes. We're going to try to be doing these about monthly, maybe every six weeks or so. And so if you have a question that we don't answer tonight or don't address tonight, please throw it down below in the video or reach out to us at doctorsrunningpodcast at gmail.com and we will try to answer them there. Well, no, we won't answer them there. We'll add them to our list of things to answer at future Q&A podcasts. So here we go. Let's jump right in. Anything else that you guys have before I bring us to the first question? Yeah. Uh, can I can I have the first question? Sure. Duck bill or flat brim? Oh, for my hat? Yeah. Um, I alternate. My, my son, Henry, is like, Daddy, I like it down more. And then my younger son, Ray, is like, Daddy, I like it up more. So it depends on what they tell me to do sometimes. <laughs> do you have an answer? What do you do? You know, I keep it flat. I do. Like the duck build's fun for a little while, but like full time it's down. Yeah. I would say I'm down probably more more often than not, but I like the design on the bottom of the one that I'm wearing. I'm wearing a CLA hat that I wear pretty much every day when I'm not at work. Cool. All right. So here's our first question from Twitter. This is from Brian Moline. And he wrote, as I ran more, lost weight and got faster, I found I need less stability in my running shoes. Is this a natural progression? 
um, or is this unique to him? So, Matt, what are kind of your thoughts as you hear that question? What other things pop through your head? Yeah, that's not an uncommon situation. Obviously, the answer is it depends on some factors related to each person. But I think with a normal trajectory for a lot of people, it's, hey, when you first get in there, you're kind of learning how to shock absorb. You're learning how to um, deal with some of the forces, say, with running. I think there's also a huge other problem that, yeah, you're going to get stronger and some people need this, some people don't. There's also a huge problem that you will hear frequently, I see frequently, is a lot of people when they first start running are put in a stability shoe when they really don't need one. So then they're running and they're like, this isn't very comfortable. And then they happen to try a neutral shoe or not, a stable neutral shoe. Like, oh, this is so much better. Why didn't I do this earlier? So there's a there's multiple things. It could be, yes, you are maturing and you're, you're improving in your con- movement control. And that's a great thing. Or it's, you may have been put in a stability shoe that you had no business being in. And unfortunately, you were put in that. So there could be many things. And if, hey, if you're the biggest thing is if you've got a shoe or a type of shoe and you're doing fine in it, stick with it. If you're not having any issues, that's fine. If you do switch, you're not having issues, that's fine too. Having some variety is good. I'm not saying saying going back to a stability shoe is a good idea. I am saying you need to find the type of footwear that works best for you. That might be one or a couple. And yeah, you know, you might, you're going to change over time. That's probably one of the more consistent things is that your needs will likely change over the years. So being adaptable is a great thing. So yeah, I think having things change is totally normal and being able to adapt with it is really important. Yeah. David, anything that you got to add onto that? Yeah, I agree Um, with everything Matt said. I think it's a little bit of both. Like as you practice running, running is a skill, right? It's multiple plyometric activities built upon one another on one leg. And so over time, you, you gather some strength, you gather some motor control. Your proprioception probably increases a little bit as far as like your ability to navigate your own terrain and use your legs and feet, ankle, knees, hips, etc., um, your skill level increases essentially, right? Uh, skill as well as usually strength, if it's training and adaptations and it's consistent and it's built over time the proper way. Um, with that said though, like some people might need a little bit of stability, right? Like some people that might be what works for them. Some people might've been put in that in to begin with, and maybe they didn't need that. And so they kind of graduate out of it, graduate in quotes for those listening, um, kind of by default, right? Like as you do the sport longer, you try more shoes. It's not like you just wear one thing forever unless it works for you. And if it works for you, then that's great and stay with it. You know, like not in the business of changing it if it works, but um, at the end of the day, like it's still running is a skill. And I think there was something that was super cool. Like this is outside of the question, but I remember watching a track broadcast one time and Otto Bolden was saying like about Bernard Lagat. It was like speed is a skill. And <laughs> it's like this guy is like he's clearly worked on his speed and there's genetic things and stuff as well and training and all those other things. But like you work on that top speed and it will get better. You work on running, it will get better. And so over time, you will get better at whatever it is that you're practicing. And if you get better at that, depending and we don't know what kind of terrain that this individual is running on as well either, you know, but I think as you run more, you get better at running. And so if you needed a little bit of stability initially, just because of however your mechanics may have been, and may- maybe you transitioned out of it, maybe you shouldn't have been in it in the first place, but like, I'm, I'm not here to make that decision over some 
over an individual I haven't met. You know, I don't, I don't know. But I think that that is a transition that a lot of people go through. And if a shoe works for you, then ride with it. Yeah. And I, you, you took the words that I was going to say, I was going to say running is something that we take for granted is something that we can just do. Not everybody takes it for granted because not everyone has the capacity to run, but running is almost taken for granted a lot of times where I do see it, like you said, David, as a skill. And we know there's documentation of changes in biomechanics over the years of running, like with years experience, things like your cadence change, like not because you've worked on it, but just because as you practice a skill like running, cadence tends to increase as you get more experience running at the same paces. And so there are changes that happen with our body. Um, and I think about the, the list that he, that this person gave. So they said, ran more, so more practice. So they were probably getting more efficient in their skill of running, lost weight, and they got faster. So all of those things, when I think of running and I think of matching footwear to running, when you run, you have to control whatever forces are going into the ground and have to use them to propel forward. And as you run faster, there is a shorter ground contact time. If you've lost weight, there is less force that you need to control. And if you become more efficient, you are not wasting energy controlling motion one way or another. So I think in terms of this progression, you're decreasing all of the demands that are put on the shoe, quote unquote, just on the shoe itself as you're running, if you're putting less force through it for a shorter amount of time and you're doing it more efficiently within yourself. So I think that does make for a natural progression towards not necessarily just going to just neutral shoes, but being able to just handle lots of kinds of shoes. I know that like anecdotally for myself, I used to not be able to run in some stability shoes because my body just couldn't handle the change. Whereas now I go and I couldn't run in low drop shoes either. I remember when I first started testing, I could barely run in any Skechers four drop shoes, four millimeter drop shoes, because I would get irritation in my Achilles and my post tib and my plantar fascia. And so I had to really marginalize my time in those shoes. Now I can just do whatever because my body has adapted. So I think that's, a, that's just a whole other piece. It might not just be that you went to a neutral shoe. You just have more versatility in what's available to you as a runner because you have more capacity inside yourself. Matt, go ahead. I, w I would totally agree. And Simon Bartold and I had this exact same discussion going, the shoes that you start running with are probably not going to be the same ones that you continue to advance with. Because as you become like, like Nathan mentioned, David, as you mentioned, as you get more experience, you, you often improve your, like, so again, you're running faster. You have, you lost some weight. So there's less, you know, less thing, less you're carrying. Right. And then you also are running farther, so more experience. So you're going to be able to, to tolerate very different things than when you first started. That's so why people ask us, hey, how do we categorize footwear? And maybe we shouldn't be categorizing things based on, you know, stability level, which is what was done previously is thinking maybe a little more cushioning when you're a newer runner might not be a bad thing. And then as you get better and you know the sport and your body knows it, you might be able to handle lighter, neutral, faster shoes. But it's also why. I really discourage newer runners from trying the carbon plated or the super foam shoes because they're so aggressive. Your body's not going to know what to do with them. Whereas when you start, you just need a probably a simple cushion shoe, maybe something stable neutral. Though that's my bias. But as you learn, you're going to be able, you're going to as you continue running, get experience. You're also going to learn what you like and what you can handle. So I think this is a natural progression. Maybe not in the way this person was asking, but it definitely sounds very natural to me. Yeah, and just to piggyback off of that, the more and more you practice the activity, in this case running, the sport of running, like you get more and more familiar with your own body, 
right? Like you get, you know what your tolerance load is, you know what your body responds to, and you know, you start to learn like what you can and can't do. And so like we get ourselves in situations, like even as experienced runners, like going on the track, let's say it's like, okay, like let's put a track spike on, you know? And it's like, okay, we got to break into these things. We got to practice it. We got to work on it. You know, like this isn't something that we just put on and that we can just go and do it. And it's like, I've run thousands of miles, right? Like it's, it should seem like something that's simple and easy, but every year, every season, it's something you got to break into, you got to work into. And that's obviously the extreme, right? We're talking about like positive drops and or neutral zero drop, whatever on a track spike. You don't really keep track of that on spikes, but it's a much more aggressive geometry. And it's in some ways a similar transition from going from nothing at all into running, right? And so that's when you like you start to just get more familiar with your own body, your own biomechanics and what you can and can't handle. And so I think that's just a natural progression in and of itself. And I think I just want to wrap this question up by just reiterating something that was said. But I think what could have been heard from us is, yes, it's a natural progression to move potentially to move towards a neutral shoe and running in a neutral shoe is better than running in a stability shoe. And that last part we are not saying Um, it's it is not necessarily better nor worse to transition to or from. And we don't recommend necessarily doing that, but it it's from a logic perspective. We can definitely see how this happens for a lot of runners. We have seen it happen and we've experienced that where kind of that, the quiver of shoes that are available to us increases as we run more. It's not bad to transition. We, I also see runners go from a neutral shoe to a stability shoe and they try a stability shoe for the first time. Like, wow, I feel so much better (laughs) running now. So that can be the other way of the progression is you just have been fighting for one philosophy of running. Like, oh, I started as a minimalist runner because I thought it was better. And then you learn that you do really well in a stability shoe. So we're not saying that one is better than the other, but yes, it could be a natural progression for your body to build up tolerance to not need as much structure as you may have used to have. So here's, uh, we're going to move on to question two. This one is from Wobazark. And they are asking, what are the best shoes for the trail, if possible, for shifting workload off the calves? I know that the stock answer would be higher drop shoes, but they're wondering if rockers, plates, and foam that have been introduced in recent years has changed the equation. So, David, do you want to start with this one? Sure. I mean, there's a couple of things you could look at when you break this question down. It starts off with like unloading the calves, right? Like, okay, so how do we unload the calves? And there's a couple ways you can do that. And they don't, so much of it's independent, like where it's the individual's own biomechanics and how they interact with the shoe. But when I think of trails, I'm also thinking of terrain, how we're navigating them. Here we have a lot of steep trails and I think of a lot of vertical gain and drop and things like that. And you're going to be using those calves a lot anyways. But, um, or situations where you might have to power hike or things like that, et cetera. But usually you take a look at some of these new foams that are coming out. They can kind of help with some of that force attenuation, give you a little bit more rebound. I think of uh, potentially a more rocker design, a little bit sharper toe spring up front, take some load off the calves, shift it a little bit higher up the chain. Um, something a little bit stiffer just in general. So usually this is something that is plated and rockered and toe spring, you know? Um, the first one that comes to mind for me would be like something like a Saucony Endorphin Edge, something along those lines, you know, obviously that may or may not work for the individual, but, um, 
basic philosophies. I look at something that's a little less, let's say, flexible, flat geometry, something you're going to have to really lever from off of the great toe, the plantar flexors. Make sure you have all that range of motion. You're able to, to push off. I'm so used to saying lever from, and I realize a lot of people don't know what I mean when I'm saying that. But um, the the less you have to physically push off of, you know, that forefoot, the less you're in theory going to be using those calves. Um, it's hard though with trail situations specifically though, because they are so variable, right? Like regardless of the shoe, I find myself using my calves quite a bit. And so, uh, and that's also biased. We have a lot of front country trails that climb a couple thousand feet in five, six miles, you know, like that's, we have a lot of steep trails. Um, but, I mean, just the basic principles still apply from what I said before. I think the base of a lot of that came from a study that was done, I think, in 2015, 2016 by Saiban. I hope I... Shaban. Oh, I'm so sorry if I'm butchering your name. Uh, but what they did is they, they didn't use shoes that were on the market. They created shoes. Um, and what they did is they had the same longitudinal bending, bending stiffness, and then they would give it... Or, and then they would give it different rockers at different points along the base of the shoe and so and give it different angles and then again different stiffnesses and what they found was that shoes with a certain amount of stiffness where you can't bend it a lot with a rocker that starts at a certain point and has a certain angle decreases the amount of load on the calf that's because it's taking over for the what we call the forefoot rocker and so that's what you can look for in a shoe and so you said endorphin edge is one another series of shoes in my head was the north face vective series i know that they have a stiffer plate design going through theirs um and i've ran in the i would say the tecton x from from hoka as well but it is a little bit flexible which i love <laughs> but so i don't know if that one would offload the calf as much but yes i think that in terms of their original question are there more things in the equation now than just high drop I think there's definitely, yes, you know, and I think that rocker and how, how stiff it is, is the main factor, but in trail situations, it depends on the type of trail, like you said, David. Um, and it's one of those where like, if you are running uphill, you're going to use your calves all the time anyway, <laughs> actually, just to keep this in mind, don't find a shoe that gets rid of your calf demand because that's not going to happen. The calf does the most of any muscle in our body for running. So you got to have strong calves regardless. And I know that's not what this person is saying that they don't want to use their calves. Um, but just know that calves are super important. And um, yeah, that's kind of all I wanted to add. Matt, I want to hear kind of from you some recommendations that you have. Any other considerations that we haven't mentioned um, in other specific shoes? Yeah, so to to jump back and kind of bring everything together, I I agree with both of you. I think it it as always the answer is depends that a lot of these new factors, if utilized correctly, can be beneficial. I think for trail, you get into, when you talk about foams, you get into a little bit of challenge because softer shoes plus softer surface, you're going to actually get more calf work because you're going to have to work on stabilizing. So instead of just being a propulsive muscle. All of a sudden, the calves get engaged because they're also postural muscles for standing and in some degree for any kind of locomotion. Now you're going to ask them to do more. So softer shoes, I would be careful with. They're going to do the opposite. The same thing with plates. If the plate lines up with your first metatarsal, which you're, you're not going to know how to do that. It's just kind of does it roll? Does it feel good? Does it roll nicely? 
if it does that, then yes. And there's you've got this nice four foot rocker that is going to be really good. If the plate does not, and that rocker does not line up with your foot, you are going to increase the demand on your calf because you're trying to push off a, an overly stiff surface. So the plate that needs to be curved and the four foot rocker needs to line up with your mechanics, um, a shoe. And obviously the high drop typically will reduce some calf activity i think the better way that we need to think about this is it reduces the range of motion required at the calf so you don't have to go as low so in some people that'll reduce the load right because if you aren't at that end range of motion there's not as much stress on the tendon or the calf you stay in a little bit more mid-range your muscles work much better in the middle than either of the extremes um you just have to be careful. You're not immune because you're still, if you work into that very short range, you can still have some issues. So again, yes, you can do it with some of the new things. And I, I think high drop, a good four foot rocker and a plate that support, not supports, but works and keeps all those things working together well is what would be really good. And the shoe that comes to mind is the Kraft Ultra Carbon. Am I saying that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. CTM I, Ultra Carbon. Yeah, two. the CTM Ultra uh, Ultra Carbon is the I'm kind actually of the one that impressed. F- I was able to rattle that off the top. Of my yeah, head. See, that <laughs> that's a good. lot. That's a so lot that's, of letters and words. That's the shoe that came to mind immediately. Yeah, it's a little pricey, but it's got everything that was mentioned. Where it has a higher drop. It's inherently stable because it's so stiff. Um, from that plate that curves really nicely it's got a really Ooh, that's really, an really EVA good transition phone, though, isn't it I, that's why i like it in terms yeah, of being yeah. a little bit no, more but, stable because it's not yeah. soft right so yeah you know in terms of reducing workload in the way that's being asked that is kind of what came to my mind that's a good one to add i i that one i haven't thought about in a while <laughs> um i think the other crap send us the update <laughs> yeah we, yeah it'd be fun to test it i think something interesting uh, to think about too, is you talked about the softness of foams. We've talked about drop and we talk about this all the time. And we just had a post on high and low drop, even on our media channels and what that does for different workload, but drop is measured statically. It's not measured dynamically. So that basically that means there's the drop that you read from our reviews or the drop that you read on websites is all based on measurements that are done without any weight through the shoe. When you start running, that changes what the actual drop of the shoe is. If you have a really soft and compliant heel, your your drop is really lower than what it's listed because you're just compressing into that foam. So in that way, how soft your heel um foam is and how that interacts with the rest of the shoe can really have an impact on the the loading through the calf because matt was talking about how higher drops bring your ankle through less range of motion that's only true if it doesn't compress all the way down to like a negative drop shoe which can happen so um i think that's just the other consideration to put in there but i like that so the shoes that we had listed david you had said what was the uh, other the endorphin edge we got the Vective series. Matt mentions this CTM Ultra Carbon um, too. So there's some good shoes in there for you in that realm to try out. I, I really want to try that new. Uh, it's, I know we just talked about it depends, but that new special foam. I can't remember what it's called. Shoe from North Face that they had. They're like first true like plated trail racer. I mean, they had another one, but now this one actually has a new foam. And I'm really, I can't remember what it's called, but I really want to try that. I don't even know what you're talking about. That's cool. I'll go look it up. Hold on. Yeah, I know you'll find it. Um, all right. So here's here's the uh, the next question. Our third question is from Laura McKean, and they're asking, what are the best shoes if you're a supinator 
and coming off an Achilles tendonitis injury. So I'm going to kind of kick this one off and then I'll let Matt kind of talk about it, Mr. Achilles. Um, so just with what you're doing with your dissertation. But my the first thing that I, I read in this question are a couple things like links that are being made that we don't know if they exist. So the the question includes that you're a supinator and you're coming off an Achilles injury. And so the there's kind of this assumption that those two things could be linked together. There's also an assumption that a type of shoe is better for someone with supination that you can match that together. There's the assumption that they are supinating and, and we don't, Laura, we don't know you. Um, so we don't know how you know that or how you've come to the supinating conclusion, but there's a lot in there about connections being made between supination and Achilles injury, supinator and shoe choice, Achilles injury and shoe and shoe choice. So there's a lot of connections that we could talk about. Um, and I think it's just worth knowing that, or considering that we don't have perfect answers for all of those links. Those aren't, those aren't givens um, for the most part, but that's what I, I wanted to bring some nuance to the question, but Matt, why don't you take it away from there? Yeah. So obviously the answer depends. So if you are someone who truly supinates, it's not surprising given some of the early suggestion, you know, everybody talked about, Oh, you know, pronation may excess uncontrolled pronation. That is the right term because pronation and supination are normal biomechanical motions, excessive or uncontrolled motion, or you having extra and then you overtraining beyond what your body's capacity to deal with that force is potentially can lead to some, some issues, right? Because both excessive motion in those planes and those supination pronation or triplanar motions, I mean, there's a couple different movements happening at the same time, either one excessively, if you're, if you are overtraining or training beyond what your body can recover from, you do that rotation of the tendon that happens from either one of those as you shift can cause some irritation. However, you need to figure out if correcting that actually changes what you feel, one of the common misconceptions is, oh, I see this movement. This is my problem. I need to change it. If you don't make that assumption, don't assume that because you supinate or pronate that that is the cause of your Achilles tendon or any issue. You need to find out and check. So there are, I'm going to give you some answers of what might help with supination. It's going to be very general. Um, but don't make that assumption because a lot of people go, oh, they, they pick what they think is the low hanging fruit. And the problem is that's not related to the tree or the bigger issue. So that just might to just reiterate happen to be hanging too, there. Yeah. And just to reiterate, the person asking this question may have done a ton of work on the front end yeah, before yeah. asking this question. So we're not saying this know. to you, Laura, yeah. this is, yeah. this is to like, just in general, if you're yeah. approaching something like this, these are just considerations <laughs> yes. you should have. I just don't yeah. want to feel like we're, you know, no, saying we're not trying to, to Laura. Yeah. It's, no. Laura, sorry, Laura. It's nothing we, personal. We <laughs> personal. We just get this a lot. Uh, so to address that, if you are, if supination and you are looking to give yourself a little bit more control over that motion to have a shoe that helps you with that, you're going to want to look for something that has sidewalls on the lateral side. So a really good example. This is not what I would probably suggest. Um, but something that has like a, a bump on the midsole that comes up a little laterally, it's a sidewall. So that's going to help Are create a little resistance there. Uh, what? That's, that's lateral. Side. Oh, no, that is that's the lateral. lateral side. My bad. My camera got. That's okay. Yeah, the fixed. rebellion okay. flash that I'm holding up. Ha I forget that people are also listening to this, so I should probably talk through what I'm actually pointing at. 
Nathan sitting over there rolling his eyes going, we've been doing this for how many years? And he's forgotten that. <laughs> um, a sidewall on the lateral side can be very, very helpful. So the, for people that are watching, the Rebellion Flash is a larger one on the lateral side, which is really helpful. The other thing that can be really helpful is any kind of lateral sole flare. So anything that kind of comes out the side. The shoe, uh, you're probably asking about a training shoe, but if you're not – a shoe that's been on the top of my mind that has a lot of lateral sole flare has been the Asics Metaspeed Sky Plus, actually, um, only because it's not as firm as a lot of super shoes, and it tends to have a lot of motion – not not a lot of motion. It has a lot of resistance to lateral motion. I feel that because I get pushed really heavily medially um, with that shoe. Another possible option, so Nathan grabbed that, is the Asics Super Blast, and the reason that might – be a good issue you got to make sure if that thing is lining up with your mechanics initially that that should actually bug me a little bit because it was so stiff but it's a good shoe that's got a lot of a lot of sole flare side to side it's it breaks inherently in yeah it, it once and then it it's got a decent rocker once it breaks in so i think the two things that would be helpful would be lateral sole flare or lateral sidewall because there's not a lot of shoes that have lateral posting so it's easy to kind of go – and you, if, if you take a look, we've got some stuff on the website that that talks about that. But you're, a shoe that's stable neutral is definitely going to be something that might interest you as well as a shoe that has a good four-foot rocker that lines up with your mechanics um, just to take some pressure potentially off the Achilles initially. But again, as Nathan mentioned earlier, you don't want to take away that load. We know from tendon pathologies you need to reintroduce that load and because you want that tendon to adapt and you need to be aware, even though this is not what you asked, when you start on this journey, if you really want to address this, you got to load it appropriately. And this is going to take consistent loading for nine plus months. That's how it ta- long it takes. At least that's with tendinopathy. I think it was tendinitis, but most tendinitis are usually tendinopathies by the time you figure it out. So that's so to answer your question more succinctly. Lateral sole flare, which is where this the sole extends out toward the outside, or a lateral sidewall would be probably helpful for you. But please try that out and let us know if it actually helps. In combination with things like rocker and drop that are known to yes. decrease some loading of those things. Yeah. But the more important part is not the shoe. And yeah. I, we say that a million loading. times. But in this situation, yeah. the shoe is is the ancillary, but it it's the ne- it's the next logical step. Oh, I'm ready to start running again. Is there something I should do in these could be tools for you. Our next question comes from Amelia Boone, which is awesome. We just had her on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, I recommend highly listening to that episode. I was not part of that recording. I just loved hearing her experience and her story as um, like an obstacle racer and just very obviously an extremely successful one. And she participated in two Barclays marathons, which I think is fascinating because I, that whole series of races and kind of what what he does with his racing and how weird it is. It's just fun to hear from somebody who's participated in it. So anyway, you can go back and hear her episode um, with Andrea. But the question that she's asking us is, what are your shoe recommendations for Halix Limitus that aren't Hoka's? So first, can can somebody say what, maybe David, you start with this. Tell us what Halix Limitus is, um, and then you can start to answer the question. We'll go from there. Sure. So anatomically speaking, I mean, it's kind of in the name, right? Halix limitus essentially means the halix, the gray toe, isn't moving. Limitus is limited. And so the movement, um, you're having a little bit of stiffness at the joint line, its ability to move usually into extension, have it come up and over so that you can lever from it. It creates a literal lever arm that you can get up and over and move from and creates what we call a windlass mechanism to help create some intrinsic stiffness 
through the lower foot, through the, you know, just the whole lower chain there. And when that's not working appropriately, we're not moving to the normal range. And it's actually kind of funny because I was going to bring this up with the previous question if this was something that was asked of me, but it wasn't. But um, sometimes people will supinate because of that. They can't get over it. So they will literally rotate over the outside of their foot if they truly are supinating because of a stiffness there or an instability elsewhere. And I, I feel like we didn't really touch on that much, but uh, conversation for another time. Th- well, thanks for bringing that but up. That's a big yeah, point. Like, <laughs> you can throw shade at me for not asking you the question too. Yeah, I know. Everyone listening, why didn't Nate not ask me my thoughts on that question? <laughs> that's that's cool, but whatever. He probably got biased because um, there was Achilles in it. He's like, well, mass dissertation. So. He was like, he's doing a PhD in Achilles, so let's just ask him. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> David's opinion no longer matters. <laughs> um. But no, that's essentially what it means. It essentially means you can't move through the full range of motion through the great toe while we're while we're literally levering off of it. And so when people can't move through the full range of motion, they start doing other things, um, regardless of what that may look like at the hip, knee, or ankle, um, or foot. And so that that's essentially what it means. It's just it's stiff. It's not moving through the full range of motion. That's this how is the shoe you use then, right? Zero shoes? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just take the, thing that the most range of motion possible. Just, you know what? Just, it's just like just force rip that thing it apart. to be uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. It's fine. Matt, every I, time I'll you take a step, you. it's like a grade five joint manipulation. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> crack, 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 crack. Why is it cracking? I repeatedly? love. I wear zero shoes every day to work. Um, Me too. So I'm not. That I was not trying to like poo poo on them. I I really enjoy using them. But zero. Uh, I want to try your leather ones. By the way, if if, if anybody from them is listening, the leather ones look really look cool. Nice. But I think no, you're out I, of stock. I still have to try a pair of zeros. Yeah, they're they nice. We get you a pair. Um. Oh man, I totally lost my train of thought. Oh, Helix Limited. That's okay. So that's yes. kind of what's happening. You have stiffness there. I think you have to know: is it truly stiff irreversibly, or is it something that you can work on from a PT standpoint and doing joint mobilizations and getting mobility back? There are some people that I've worked with who have fusions, which means that they put a pin through that joint because of advanced arthritis, and so the pain is mitigated by using a uh, yeah using a rod to prevent any joint motion. So they have true hallux limitus; it will not move because it is pinned together. Um, some people just have progressive stiffness due to potentially something like osteoarthritis in that joint. So uh, what type of stiffness you have and what is leading to your hallux limitus matters as well in terms of you, if you should try to address it um, clinically versus just using a shoe as a Band-Aid. Um, but in, there's a, plenty of situations where using shoes as Band-Aids is, is helpful. Um, and even beyond Band-Aids, it might be your only option. Um, so when you think of specific shoes, Matt, what shoes come to your mind and what components of shoes are important? You know, I'm going to need both of your help because I'm having a brain fart right now. I can tell you the components, but I'm trying to think of something that exactly matches this and I'm having a little trouble. Um, All right, go with it. Uh, and actually Hoka is not on there because of something I'm yeah, going to bring up I've... in just a second. That's been a little different recently. David, you're going to yeah, it depends how stiff we're talking. I mean, normally you think of something that's a little bit rockered as a sharper toe spring. You don't have to use that range of motion as much. However, if you can't get into extension in the first place, something like an Asics Glide Ride might be a little much. It might right. push you into that range and be uncomfortable. But yep. I think of something like a Saucony Endorphin Shift. I think of... Yep. Just really any go. of the shoes, Asics, Evo Ride, Trinusa, really anything that's got a little bit of a toe spring up front that just kind of takes that 
edge off a little bit as far as the range of motion that the gray toe has to move through. But there's so many other great options as well. And like I think of something almost like an on cloud monster as well. That has a little bit more flexibility, are, yeah. so you will have to use that. But it's a little bit more suspensive. It doesn't quite make you use it as much. Um, I'll let you continue though. I know you we got the yeah. The, back. the the shift was a great example. I don't know why I didn't think of that since it's one of my favorite shoes. But what you're going to be looking for is something that is appropriately stiff that has a good forefoot rocker. But ha- you got to be very careful with toe spring. Toe spring refers to how much your toes are held in extension. So you, the upward curve that happens at the front of the shoe needs to happen below your toes and not up into them. So I, my greatest example is I, I really enjoy the A6 Metaspeed Edge Plus. It was one of my, it was one of my favorites. It didn't quite make the top, but it was one of my favorites for last year. And I recently messed up one of my toes that had, and had a lot of trouble with extension and found I could not wear this shoe because of the amount of the, the extension that my toe had to go into just to sit there normally. So that's called toe spring. The thing underneath there is called – it's a forefoot rocker, right? So you want to make sure that your toes can rest in neutral in the shoe, right? So not in extension, not in flexion, in the middle – and then have a curve that meets the toes but doesn't jam them upward that is appropriately stiff and the shoe doesn't change, you can roll off of it. So the shift, I think, is a great example. I can see both Nathan and David looking, and they're both thinking, um, you just got to be careful with that because I've had people, and I think the Glide Ride is a great example where it's a great shoe, it's super rockered, but it also has an, an incredible amount of toe springs. So you need to have good toe extension to handle that shoe, and that may not work for somebody that has Halix Rigidus and can't go there anyway, so you can't just be held there. Topo Spectre. That could that's be an another option. Oh, that's a, oh, that's a, that's a, that's oh, toe that's spring. a good idea. Toe spring yeah. is slightly flexible, wide base yeah. in the forefoot. I wanted to grab it, I just can't reach it. Like I can yeah. see it. I got it. And I'm like, yeah, so it's another one, right, where it's like it's present, it's there, but it's it's balanced. It's not plated, you know, so there's still a little bit of flexibility to it. Um, but, yeah, that's one that could work. So off topic, I would I can understand why the no Hoka thing. Nothing against Hoka. It's just a lot of their toe boxes tend to run kind of narrow. Like I'm experiencing that with the Challenger right now. My toe is finally healed that I can handle being an issue, which is great. But, yeah, it can be a little rough on the toes. And they've, over the years, have increased the amount of toe sprain, like the, the upward re- extension required. So that I can understand why maybe that's not working. But, obviously, it depends on the Hoka shoe. So don't – I'm not hating on them, and I encourage you not to push them out. But I think, yeah, there's some factors that have to be combined all the right way to get what you want. And the question did ask for non-Hoka responses. Yeah, specifically. So, yeah, that's right. I, I think – I think what's interesting, most of the shoes that we use specific examples for were, were Saucony shoes, but that's because they do a lot. They don't put toe spring really much in any of their yeah. their shoes. Even their racers, like I'm holding, you know, I have both the Elite and the Pro 3. Well, the Elite does. And they, it's not too much, though. In compa- no, it looks, that's a pretty it, sharp toe spring. It looks like more than it is because of the color of the color of the foam but the the toe springs pretty flat the the platform's pretty flat itself but especially the i think even the the speed and the pro um from the endorphin speed and pro they're relatively flat for toe spring as well um but the the my number one was going to be the shift as well that's the one that i've had a lot of patients who have worked with who've had the the pin put in that's the one that they've had a lot of success with so 
uh, it's almost where, like the whole team at Saucony listens to a certain podcast and actually listens <laughs> to us. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, cool. All right. So we're going to move on to our next question. Um, the This next question is from, oh gosh, hopefully I can do this right. Alexandra Siegler. That's my best take at it. Uh, what are the best exercises to loosen hips? That's the question. What what questions come into your head, Matt, when you get asked that question? My question is, why are your hips tight in the first place? So if it's coming, sorry, I know the students know that we always say it depends. If your issue is coming from a muscle flexibility problem, then yeah, you're going to need to probably get that moving a little bit. So some dynamic stretching would probably be good. You're going to need to work on that for a significant amount of time. If it's joint related, you're going to need to treat that differently. And there's some good techniques. Um, I think David, haven't you've put some stuff out on like hip mobility stuff, right? Do I remember you singing like study wise on your stuff on on your Instagram. on your Instagram? Yeah, oh, I, have I'm you? sure I I probably have. Yeah, yeah. I, I've but, done a lot of random things. Yeah, so doing some like <laughs> hip openers, and again, not necessarily static holds, but some like mobile mobilizations and stuff like that um, is a good one. But there's also the possibility that your hips are tight because you need a little bit more strength from some of your smaller muscles, like your deep hip rotators and stuff like that. You can have tightness for a variety of reasons, and if you're trying something and it's not working, it may be because you're not treating the right thing. So if, if it's a if it's everything's tightening down because it's easier for the muscles to stabilize if they're just tight, you might need to work on some strength of some of those little muscles. If it's a joint mobility problem, the joint the actual capsule of the joint that surrounds it that makes it a living tissue is stiff, you're gonna need to do some joint mobility stuff. If it's a flexibility problem, you're gonna need to work on stretching out whatever muscle is tight and then strengthening through that new range that you get. Because just stretching often isn't enough. You've got to make sure your body can utilize that new motion. Think David, you might have some better or better ideas than me in terms of No, no, what I, you think. I I agree completely. I think one thing that's important to look at with this question, and you hit this, I just think this might be a more clear way to say it in one word. Is it tightness or is it tension? Right? Like, like, is it genuinely tight? Is it short? Is the length of the literal muscle short? Is it, is it literally tight and you can't move or lever from it? Or is it tense? You know, is it short because it's tightening itself up to try and protect something? And so that's a conversation, you know, beyond the scope of this podcast. But if it's tension, it's usually because it doesn't quite feel safe letting the joint go through that full range of motion because of those hip rotators, because of the stabilizers and things around it. And so working on that stability as a whole. And also, like, there's this thing called autogenic inhibition that you can use that muscle to relax itself create an increased range of motion. A lot of PNF activities, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation as far as the acronym goes, but there's a lot of those types of um, activities and techniques out there to help relax that. And then once you have that gateway to use that range of motion, now you work on stabilizing it and actually using it, right? Um, that's if it's tense. That's if that's if you don't have that strength there. Let's say it doesn't have to necessarily be those hip flexors. Well, I mean, it tends to be a common culprit, but like doesn't have to be in the hip itself. It could be in the back. It could be in the core. It could be something that's just not quite doing its job. So something else is having to do, make up slack so that you can put one foot in front of the other in a slightly efficient way. And 
that's the tension side of it. Then there's also the tight side of it, right? Like, let's say you drive for work. Let's say you have a sedentary desk job. Let's say that you're in a position where you're literally in hip flexion for long periods of time. You're going to be a little tight. You are like, you're just stuck there. Our body adapts. And it's one of those things. Ah, why am I blanking right now? It's called, um, shoot, Adaptive uh, selective. Yeah, there we go. Adaptive shortening. That's, that's the word I'm looking for. And so, it, it, um, it, because you don't use that range of motion on a normal basis, it's something that your body adaptively shortens into. It's like, okay, well, you use me in this range of motion on a normal basis. I'll just stay in this range of motion. This is where our body's happy. And then when you try and do something that isn't that, then it starts barking back at you a little bit. And so it's just important to find out why it is quote unquote tight and or tense and to move forward from there. I'm going to bring us to our next question. I know Matt's itching to continue. You want to say one more thing? All right. My one thing Let's to actually give an exercise instead of an explanation, I one of the things that I will commonly give patients to continue to keep things open, I'm a big fan of giving as little as possible, making it easy as possible to do. So before and after runs, one of my favorite things, I forget the individual's name, but I learned this from someone. There's a like, it's it's just basically doing lunges, like lunges as a warm up, lunges as a cool down to kind of try to maintain that motion. So you're kind of drawing as far as you comfortably can front laterally reverse couple different directions just in just kind of a circle just to open things up on both sides of the hips because you get strengthening you get a nice dynamic stretch and you also load at the end range which tells your body oh i can do this so lunges in different in, a, in, a, in multiple planes of motion can be really helpful before and after a run because that's because you know that as soon as you stop you're gonna if I, if we give you a specific exercise to go we need to do this a certain you're not going to do it but if you add something into part of your run routine you're more likely to do it so i would say some nice lunges in different planes of motion can be really helpful to work on just an easy way to work on hip range of motion then see what happens and let us know that is not me prescribing that that's suggesting so you can't do it. <laughs> all right so a couple, uh, yeah. i've got a couple questions coming now and these will be a well there's one that's probably gonna be a little bit longer but a couple of these will be a little bit quicker um the first one is gonna be the slightly longer one but it's what's the best marathon racing shoe for a heel striker and I'll I'll start answering that question, Ivan, just to just to kind of start the conversation. I think the first thing is there's a there's a big assumption there that heel striking really matters, and um, I think that first you have to differentiate a little bit from heel striking and rear foot striking and overstriding. So like rear foot striking and landing on your heel is not a bad thing period. I think we've, there's enough research to show that it's not bad to land on your heel. It's not bad to land on your forefoot. They are just different. Um, so it, but it, it does matter how far in front of your body, your foot lands, uh, in terms of loading profiles and kind of what it does to our body. So if you're landing on a, a heel way in front of your body, where your shin is straight out in front of you, your knee is extended when you're hitting the ground, that's very different than landing on your heel with your foot under kind of closer underneath your body. If that's the case where your foot is landing underneath your body, pretty much all of these super shoes, marathon shoes would work for you as a heel striker. I don't think that's the factor that would drive me to recommend a shoe for one person. Another is where they land on their foot. Um, the thing that would, that would lead me to 
choose a shoe for somebody is more about like how they, again, how they hit the ground, where their foot is when they hit the ground and what their stride looks like as they're coming through. What's the length of their toes in terms of the different toe springs and all these shoes, but where they land for me does not change what my recommendation is, um, for one shoe versus another. Do you guys have different opinion than that? Um, or, or, or not. I personally don't because you realize 70 to 80% of the population is going to heel strike. So it would make sense for the running industry to go, Hey, better make, we better make sure this feels decent for that population. I think more shoes have gotten more companies have gotten really good at having some variety going, no matter where you land, the shoe's probably going to work for you. Um, you're just going to have different stresses depending on where you land now. So that's really it. So, but I think for the most part, you're going to be pretty good with most things. There's some other factors I would, we would need to know, I think in terms of being able to suggest a shoe, but your foot strike type is not one of them. It will depend on, Hey, do you want a softer ride in the heel? Do you want a firmer ride in the heel? That is going to be more helpful than foot strike because your preference in footwear is going to be more helpful than that. Because you're gonna, yeah. f- I my opinion is you'll find heel strikers that really like something that is stable in the heel, or or less, or really narrow in the heel, or really soft or really firm. But I don't think that's because you land there. I think that's just your preference. <laughs> um, David, what were you gonna say? Yeah, it just comes back to that comfort filter. What you prefer, what works with your own biomechanics, kind of just coming down to the shoes you prefer and the style you like it in. Um, I think one general theme, and you hit this earlier, is something that is kind of gently, at least gently, but sometimes a little bit harshly beveled, you know, in the heel, kind of usually transitions into a toe spring, kind of checks the box on every racing show on the market at this point. So um, just finding the feel you like. And I was talking to someone about this the other day about a shoe that really worked for them. And they were like, oh, yeah, they just hit the fit. Like, they just hit the feel of it. Like, I just like the way that shoe feels. It had nothing to do with you know, what foam was in it, what plate was in it. Like they're like, that just works for my mechanics and it's something that is nice. And so I think it's just trying the shoes on, finding out what you like, you know, for the most part, they're all going to be pretty agreeable. It's going to be more like, what do you actually like? Light strike pro does not feel the same as the shoe that the craft rebel feels like, or the, uh, a six flight foam turbo does not feel the same as zoom X or, etc you know power on pb does not feel like power on hg even within the same company so yeah yeah and foam's only part of the equation right like how large is this beveled what's the stack what's the drop what's the plate like there's so many variable factors like just find something that works for you that you like and i think you hit it on the head like as far as like like having the heel security what does the upper feel like what is the fit of the shoe is there a counter you know just how does that transition feel for you through the rear foot I do think one other consideration for those people who are very heavy heel strikers, meaning they reach out in front of them, maybe a very low cadence, and they really pound the ground. One thing you might want to consider going back to an earlier conversation that we had at Uh, one of these questions that we answered earlier is what is the drop of the shoe? Because most of these marathon racers have very soft and compliant foams. So something like the Metaspeed Sky or something like the original Alpha Fly that have a four millimeter drop or a five millimeter drop and are very compliant foams, they can feel more zero drop or even i remember when i was running in the original sky it felt like a negative drop to me and it was a little bit tough i know i personally also had problems i'm a rear foot striker um but i also had problems in the 
um, Mizuno Wave Rebellion Pro. And so depending on, again, like if you're really far out there, that drop would be maybe the one consideration. Not that you should chew, but that should choose, but maybe is the one like that you might steer yourself away from. And now the new Alpha Fly 2 is an 8mm drop statically, and that's probably, in my opinion, probably because they were noticing how much it compressed and they wanted to open it up to more people because it's listed at 8, but it probably runs like a 4 or less millimeter drop shoe. Um which I have never ran in it, but <laughs> just what I know about Zoom X and the other shoes I've ran in, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm still trying to get him a pair. <laughs> All right. You guys ready for the final question of the night? Yep. All right, here we go. Running on endorphins. Their question is, what's everyone's favorite post-race food? What you guys got? David, as we're recording Ooh, Dave, this, we go David's, David's marathon first. is coming up this weekend. Yeah. So he's probably thinking about what am I going to eat after? So, David, what is your what's your answer for your favorite post race food? Nathan, my dude. Do you know me at all? <laughs> hey, I gotta I gotta let the people you gotta answer it for the people. You know, you know I'm just the we, messenger. When we're talking post race, I want something savory. I want something quick. I want something that I can just murder in two, three bites, but have numerous infinite amounts of it. That, my friend, is street tacos. <laughs> I can have my cake and eat it, too. I can have asada. I can have barbacoa. I can have lengua. I can have whatever I want. <laughs> and just just go and just go to town. Yeah. You know, after after 26 miles. And it's salty, you know, right? too. And it's salty. Like, it's so savory. It's it goes down yeah. well. Like, And even if your stomach's mad afterwards, like, you're not mad. You know, like, you... <laughs> that's a risk i'm willing to take you know like um (laughs) so that's that's what i gotta go with i gotta go with street tacos we knew everyone knew the whole world knew this was the answer but it's still a good one now what's your answer you know immediately afterwards over the years i've actually had a little bit more trouble with solid food and i know especially my body and brain with the amount of stuff that i need to do I got to get something in quick because if I start running on empty, it's going to ruin the rest of my day. And I don't I can't afford to just sit there and like anymore. So I, I really encourage considering recovery drinks. So I really, really like uh, Scratch Labs and they have a couple really good ones. The horchata one, the chocolate milk, the chocolate one, the coffee is really good because it tastes great, but it's still super light in your stomach. You can get a good amount of calories, carbohydrate and protein in really quick. Um, if you want some caffeine, that's also just people know that I put scratch coffee in my coffee. In your so, coffee. <laughs> yeah. My poor students, I got to give them a shout out for, for dealing with me. I come in like hyper caffeinated and I have this huge mug that's filled with light roast coffee. And I had one student who like I was opening up and they're like, what is that paint thinner? I'm like, no, it's just really strong coffee. And he realized like it was really, <laughs> it's so strong. I was like, oh, OK. Um, so, Yeah there's there's that uh but i for those who can't handle solid food initially like my stomach's been having more trouble with it recovery drinks can be helpful afterwards and then yeah whatever you enjoy right like there's i I think from the individuals i've talked to david is a great example of this that like find something you like right you just like ran your butt off find something you like eating my my mine comes from a story after my first marathon and so now this is what i crave after every like hard race but i got done with the chicago marathon 
And we had to walk like two miles to get back <laughs> to where our car was. Just, just the nature of, I feel like the Chicago marathon is you got to get to where you got to get to. But on our way there, we didn't know what we were going to eat, but there was a Shake Shack on the side of the road. Oh I'm yeah. Like, yeah. Let's just go there. And I just got a big burger and fries and it was gone in like two seconds. It was like the fastest, most easily down burger that I could ever take. So anytime I have a big race, I am always craving like burgers and fries. Um, just it's that fattiness, the salt, it just feels really good. Um, and the carbs of the, it just feels good from the bread too. So that's, that's my pick, but, um, there's lots of good stuff out there. So thank you all for participating in our Q&A episode. We, again, we're planning to do these more regularly than we have in the past. As we sat down and talked about 2023, this was one thing that we knew we wanted to do more because there are a lot of good questions that people had last year that we just didn't get to. So we're starting to keep a log of stuff. And if your question didn't get answered today, it might pop up in a future episode. Um, so keep, and if, if it didn't get hit today and you really want it answered, shoot it to us again so we can just continue to, to log it and make sure that we we get to it. So if you want to follow what you're doing, what we're doing here, you can hop over to drsavernie.com as well as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and follow all those social media channels. And if you can, it really does help us out if you leave a review for this podcast um, and, uh, either, and, and write a little bit of what you like about it. Super helpful for us. So uh, thanks everybody for joining us for this episode. Thank you.